Hello ladies and gentlemen. Today I am with Stephen Arnett, Associate Professor of Legal Studies at Hamlin University. Stephen, thanks for being on the show. I'm happy to be here. Well Stephen, uh, to start us off, could you give us a little brief history uh, of your story and what's gotten you to this point? Okay, well it started out in Australia um, and uh, I came to the US in 1991. I was the accompanying spouse. My ex-wife worked for 3M. But I'd started studying law in Sydney part-time, and it made sense, seeing as I couldn't work, to, to go to law school. So I went to what was then William Mitchell College of Law here in St. Paul and graduated in 1994 um, with a JD. I practiced uh, in my own firm uh, from 1995. I did mainly family law, although I did some other things as well, and uh, started teaching in 2004, I became a, a legal writing instructor at William Mitchell and then taught family law as an adjunct professor there. Um, also did some other teaching work and was lucky enough to get a full-time position here at Hamlin in 2008. So I've been teaching here at Hamlin for uh, oh, a complete 11 years now. Pretty wonderful resume you got there. One thing I found awesome when I was looking in to your resume I saw that you graduated from Tasmania University, uh, and that in itself is awesome because of the Tasmanian devil. <laughs> that animal is awesome. Well, it's a li little unusual. There aren't too many graduates of the University of Tasmania here in the U.S. There are some, but uh, and not too many in Minnesota, I don't think. Uh, yeah, I did go to the University of Tasmania, and uh, my father worked for an airline so in Australia, so we got shifted around a little bit, and I ended up going to high school. or. The last four years of high school. In Australia, high school is uh, 7th grade through 12th grade. And so I went 9th through 12th uh, in Tasmania and then went to the University of Tasmania where I studied uh, political science. And uh, yes, there are Tasmanian devils in, in Tasmania. <laughs> there are, it's an interesting story, actually. They're nothing like the cartoon character. Uh, <laughs> nothing at all like the cartoon character. They, are, uh, they feed on carrion. So they actually clean up roadkill uh, rather than actually hunting live prey. And uh, they are actually very um, highly threatened uh, by a, uh, a facial cancer, which Tasmanian devils get. And it's a viral cancer, so it's spread very easily from devil to devil. And so they've done a lot of research and, uh, and spent quite a bit of money uh, in researching a, a cure for this uh, facial cancer that the devils um, have. And they've actually gone to the step of putting some um, breeding devils on uh, an island off South Australia to preserve a cancer-free uh, colony of, of Tasmanian devils. I understand that they've made some significant progress in, in halting this disease, uh, but it's still, it's still a difficult situation for the Tasmanian devil. But they are, they're powerful little critters. They could certainly take <laughs> your arm off if they wanted to, but as I say, they, they tend to feed on, uh, on carrion. Interesting. I'm so glad I asked because, yeah, the cartoon was what originally sparked my love for the Tasmanian <laughs> Devil. Right. And then a family friend went to Australia and they're like, they're so ugly. And I was like, I don't care. I love the Tasmanian Devil, mainly for the title. Right. Uh, but I saw at Tasmania University that you got and you did your honors thesis on, uh, let's see, the contributions of Rousseau, Rousseau and Hegel, am I saying that right? Correct. Hegel yes. to international relations theory. Right. Uh, and I found that interesting sort of thinking about uh, Rousseau's view to the social contract uh, and how he sort of represented 
the common man. Mm -hmm. And his, uh, his famous quote is, man is born free, but every, he is e everywhere he is in chains. Right. Uh, it was sort of that idea, you're born naturally peaceful and kind and, and cherubic, but then society turns you into a force of, of evil or shapes you in that respect. I'm interested about your, about your honors thesis. Well, the background of that is in, in Australia, university is a, a bachelor's degree is a three-year degree. Um, but you have the option of doing a fourth year, which is an honors year. And the way it was structured when I went to university is that you would narrow your focus as you go through your, your university career. And then your honors year, you focus on, on a particular area of study. And in my case, I did two courses, uh, international relations theory and foreign policy were the two courses. And I wrote my honors thesis in the area of international relations theory. My professor at, at uh, the university then was a, a Scotsman uh, by the name of Andrew Linklater. And uh, he, he sparked an interest in uh, political philosophy, particularly um, European political philosophy, uh, German philosophers and so on. And I was interested in international relations uh, and foreign policy, so it seemed like a, an ideal topic to, to try and put those things together. So what I was looking at there was uh, particularly focusing on the idea of freedom, um, and it, it, it was really looking at two ideas of, of freedom, which is actually very applicable now as we think about it in, in the 21st century and in the United States, and maybe we can talk about a little about that, is the contrast between negative freedom and positive freedom. And um, what I was looking at is how those ideas might translate into the realm of international relations. Uh, negative freedom being freedom from. And this is something we're very used to in the United States because we have the Bill of Rights. And the Bill of Rights is, is more or less about uh, protecting individual freedoms from uh, government intrusion into those freedoms. So it's a freedom right. from certain things. Whereas the idea of positive freedom uh, is the idea of being free to do certain things. And that implies often some form of government action to create an environment in which people can do things, live up to their full potentiality and so on. So I was looking at the idea, I'm looking at Rousseau's ideas and Hegel's ideas and how I, we might translate those into um, thinking about international relations where you have a system of individual separate states. Um, hmm. So it was, uh, it was something that I, that I certainly found interesting at the time. And it's something I've come back to over the years when I've been looking at, um, for instance, um, how we might use international human rights principles in other areas. Um, I wrote an article with one of my former colleagues on, on looking at how we might use international human rights principles in assisting victims of domestic violence in, hmm. in the employment context. So there are all sorts of implications that, uh, that can be spun out of that. Hmm. And so when it comes to international human rights and domestic violence cases, what would be like in it, what would be sort of ideal like international laws pertaining to domestic violence well, there's uh, an example that, that I, we used in our article is a, a case, actually, a U.S. case, um, uh, Town of Castle Rock, uh, Gonzalez versus Town of Castle Rock, which was a case in which um, a woman was a victim of domestic violence and uh, she had uh, three daughters. And the father actually had the daughters um, 
after uh, an order for protection had been issued. And uh, ultimately, to cut a long story short, actually murdered the three kids oh. um, and was killed himself in a standoff with police. The, the, what happened was that uh, the mother sued the town of Castle Rock for failing to, essentially failing to enforce the terms of the order for protection. She, she called hmm. the police, said the girls haven't been returned, and the police essentially didn't do anything. Uh, he'll, he'll bring them back and so on and so forth. And eventually, of course, the, the, the tragedy happened, and so she sued. And it went all the way to the US Supreme Court, and she was basically arguing that she was denied due process um, and uh, the Supreme Court said, overruling the, the Colorado court, said that, um, no, this wasn't a constitutional violation. But the interesting thing from an international human rights perspective is that she then took the, the case to the Inter-American Court of Justice. The U.S. Is, is, has signed uh, uh, many international agreements and become party to, to some, but um, the... Uh, uh, Inter-American Court of Justice is one that the U.S. has signed and become a party to, and so she could actually sue the United States in the Inter-American Court of Justice, which was part wow. of the Organization of American States. And she won um, wow. at, at that level, and the court said that this was a violation of her rights um, because the, the U.S. had failed, essentially, in its duty of protection. Um, and... Is it enforceable? No. There's no way she can enforce any judgment in the United States. But it was an important case for establishing the principle that um, human rights are capable of international protection. Um, and this was in the context of uh, domestic violence. So interesting. And to repeat the name of the, the Inter-America... Inter-American Court of Justice. Inter-American Court of Justice. And so to clarify, she, she sued the town of Castle Rock... And it went to the Supreme Court, and they said, "There's nothing we could do about no, this." No violation of the U.S. Constitution. No violation. What of the she US was, she, and certainly no due process violation. Now, okay. you might argue that she might have sued under a different constitutional theory, equal protection, for example. But there was no due process violation here, according to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I, quite frankly, I, I probably agree with that conclusion. Hmm. Even though I might have, I thought she might have had more success under a different constitutional theory. But yeah, the US Supreme Court ruled against her. And, and then and then she takes it to the international, inter, and international, the international court, court, and that's where she's able to win Correct. over. So how does the international court uh, basically have authority over the US Supreme Court? Because, well, not authority over the US Supreme Court. The US Supreme Court is supreme so far as the u.s constitution is okay concerned. Yeah. so the u.s supreme court found that there was no constitutional violation but what the inter-american court of justice found was that the u.s had breached its obligations under the uh international uh treaty that the u.s had become part of so the convention that the the human rights conventions that the u.s had become part of in joining uh the organization of american states um uh, they'd the U.S. had violated that, those obligations. Now, nothing is enforceable as a result of that in the United States. So it's not a case that the International Court has overturned any judgment of yeah, the no U.S. Supreme Court. It's merely said that the U.S. has violated these obligations, not necessarily any obligations that the state might have had under the U.S. Constitution. Okay. Right. Fascinating. 
That's, that's, it was a very interesting, very interesting case. Yeah, because yeah. I think, I mean, if you would not have told me that now, I might have lived my whole life never knowing there was an inter-American <laughs> court of justice. Um, that's, I mean, that's amazing. So relating to sort of international relations on a broader scale, um, I've been taught that when it, well, I guess the major tenets of international relations, uh, are they, is one war, is another trade, what are some of the major, other than those two, what are the other tenets we're looking at when it comes to international relations? Well, it depends what part of international relations or what context of international relations you're looking at. Yeah. Because, um, sure, I mean, countries go to war and countries trade. There's, there's no doubt about that. But what um, the, the regime, and I use the word, word regime loosely. <laughs> I like again, how you say it. You're talking about enforcement. Uh -huh. um, the, we, have an we have international law. Mm -hmm. And um, countries, to one degree or another, of course, are subject to international law. And the areas that international law and international human rights law um, get involved in are those very areas. Trade, war. Mm -hmm. have, we, we have you know, the international law of war. So we have laws, international laws, which are applicable to how countries conduct themselves uh, when they're at war. Um, and then we have uh, re uh, regulations regarding trade, although trade is more often um, subject to uh, international private law rather than international law. So mm. we have laws governing um, uh, bills of lading and, and uh, how uh, trade is, is how trade takes place between private entities in different countries, for example. Mm. Um, so international law uh, is a more overarching concept um, governing the relations between states because the international system is still the relationship between individual states. So you have bilateral relations between, say, the United States and Australia, for example. You have treaties between the United States and Australia. Um, and then you have, and so you have a body of treaty law, which is part of international law. And then you have multilateral arrangements between groups of states. So you might have the US, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, England in, in a grouping. You may have m many more states involved in, in multilateral treaties. And so international law uh, plays a role there as well. Um, so there are all sorts of areas where you know, international law can, can get involved. That's intriguing. That's so, that's so good to learn that there is so much behind international law. How often are countries breaking international law are they pretty good about following the international law and is there penalty what sort of penalties are enforced for breaking those international laws yes yes and no um or the answer to any legal question is it depends <laughs> um, that's the correct answer to most legal questions it depends um yeah the answer the short answer is yes uh, nations do violate international law although surprisingly enough they're often very scrupulous about being trying to be seen to adhere to international law. Um, international law, um, it, it, it's a complex area, and it, it, someone once said that it's, it's one of the saddest of subjects, um, partly because um, there is no real enforcement mechanism for international law. Um, there can be enforcement of, for instance, Security Council resolutions and so on, but bottom line is if a country really wants to do something a country will really do that something and possibly get away with it i mean 
the, uh, a recent example is the um, the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi dip, uh, Saudi um, uh, journalist in Turkey, where um, more most recently uh, the UN investigator has said that there's credible evidence that uh, Saudi Arabia was behind the the murder and that uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia knew something about it, if not ordered it. Uh, of course, Saudi Arabia denies this, and the, the allegation is that there is a violation of international law and violation of international human rights, um, uh, as far as the individual is concerned. I, I'd imagine, right? right? Yeah. Um, but what enforcement mechanisms are there now? Well, there aren't really any, because if Saudi Arabia chooses not to subject itself to any form of formal trial or anything like that, there's no way that any pronouncement of anybody could be enforced against Saudi Arabia. So um, even though there may be a, a, whole, a whole lot of credible evidence that uh, Saudi Arabia was involved in this, then there's not much that can be done. And this is where international law can be very frustrating. Having said that, of course, there are areas where international law has proved to be an effective tool for, for modifying or controlling state behavior, but it can be very frustrating. We, there is, of course, the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, but that's um, a voluntary thing. In other words, okay. uh, nations voluntarily submit disputes to the International Court of Justice unless there's a treaty or other agreement which provides for compulsory jurisdiction. But absent that in an, in an agreement, then countries submit their disputes voluntarily to the ICJ, and they do. Um, there are disputes that are submitted to the International Court of Justice and the International Court of Justice rules. And in, in many cases, countries have abided by what the International Court of Justice has said. But the International Court of Justice has no police force. Rather, <laughs> rather like the U.S. Supreme Court. Huh. The U.S. Supreme Court has no enforcement mechanism. So when the United States Supreme Court hands down a judgment, hands, hands down an opinion, there's no way that it can actually enforce that, opi that opinion. I'd never thought of that before. It's one of the interesting things about the United States. Um, Do other countries have police forces to back up their Supreme Courts? Um, in a manner of speaking, yes. Uh, countries have, all countries have constitutions, but of course the political system in, in countries is different. But one of the things that's been said about the United States is that we're a, a nation of laws, not a nation of men. And uh, it's that fundamental respect for the United States Supreme Court as an institution, one of the, the three uh, separate branches of, of government, that uh, enables the United States to continue in the way it does because uh, the, judge, the uh, judgments of the United States Supreme Court are entitled to respect. Now, it can vet, get very close to the line because, of course, if you go back to the 1950s and Brown versus Board of Education and the efforts to desegregate, um, even though uh, the United States Supreme Court had taken a taken a certain direction, then it was still up to the executive to ensure that the laws were faithfully executed, and so you had the National Guard being used, and, and so on and so forth. So it, it doesn't mean that laws ca can't be enforced, but the Supreme Court itself has no police force. Um, hmm. Its judgments are entitled to respect. Interesting. Yeah. Wow, yeah, that's a, I mean, that's, 
Yeah, so, so I'm trying to really contemplate, you know, just that it is solely on respect. Um, so to to sort of recall what we had talked earlier about the application of your honors thesis when it came to Rousseau and Hegel's uh, free when you looked into the freedom uh, aspect of their views and how it related to international relations. What are some applications we're seeing now? Um, the app, well, the it's not so much the applications that we're seeing now as um, how you might view um, freedom in a contemporary context. Okay, and you can look at it in look at it in this way. And I go back to the to the U.S. Constitution. Um, when you look at the the Bill of Rights, there are all of these these negative freedoms. Your freedom from unre you're free from unreasonable searches, uh, and, and so on. Um, if you look at the the, the Constitution, um, there are certain what we would consider possibly rights which simply don't exist in the United States Constitution. For instance, you have no right to an education. Interesting. You have no right to health care. I knew that. <laughs> um, but you certainly have no right to an education. Now, remember there are 51 constitutions in the United States and under a state constitution, you may have the right to a form of education. You may have a right to a basic education. You might have the right not to be discriminated in terms of educational services that you're provided. But under the US Constitution, there is no right to education. Now, is, is that because they've given that jurisdiction to the, the, to the states? In many cases, education is considered to be a state matter, although there is a federal department of education and so on. Um, and of course, the, the federal government has the power of the purse in many ways and can withhold or grant funds which can which can influence state behavior. But in terms of freedom, you might think that the only way in which you can fulfill your potential as a human being is to have a certain level of education and educational opportunities. The only way you can fulfill your potential as a human being is to have a certain level of health which enables you to do certain things. That's the sort of the positive view of freedom which uh, contrasts with the freedom from kind of thing and that gets into all sorts of political political areas because that implies that yes. in order for you to have fulfill these potentialities you have to be able to have a certain level of education or, or healthcare or health for example and that gets that's a, a sort of political way of looking at things absolutely yeah wow and when you talk about sort of the right to education and right to health care, I guess something to bring up sort of on the cons cons conservative mm -hmm. side of things is the faith in a in the capitalist mm -hmm. free market that through a free market, education and health care will be provided to the most amount of people with the highest quality possible. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Just like how we go to a grocery store and buy food for not very much money, right. um, that you're able, that as many people as possible are able to get food and still get quality food. and uh, right. But at the same time, you have laws in place that enable that food to be clean and right. and under hygiene. Uh, but that's a whole other different topic. That well, you're taking me way back to my political science days, <laughs> because that's essentially what, what I was focusing on in throughout my my undergraduate career was, uh -huh. was looking at the at political theory and, and politics as applied and looking at the ways in which individuals 
related to one another and how individuals related to the society they were in and how individuals related to the, the government, whatever the form of government that, that uh, existed. And there, there's a, you know, a wide range of, of political theory. I yeah. spent a lot of time looking at John Stuart Mill, for example, and, and the role of the, the individual and the role of government in relation to the individual. The same with, with Rousseau. Rousseau. Uh-huh. Um, and and it, very, it very much reflects two ways of looking at how um, an individual is best able to achieve whatever the potentialities that the individual um, has. Is it being left alone, or uh-huh. is it being able to do certain things because of what society or the government has put in place? In other words, of a floor, for example, to enable someone to then grow beyond that floor. Yeah. It, it's an intense political argument, <laughs> and we're going to we're going to see it reflected over the next couple of years, of course, with the the camp the presidential campaign, because I think they're going to be too not. It won't be reflected in those terms, but you're going to you're going to be seeing a lot of talk about the role of government, and you're going to hear the word socialism bandied around a lot. Yeah, I'm sure. Over the next two years, and you worded that really well. And how you bring that up, the that argument will only get more intense and intense mm-hmm. as pol- polarization grows. Right. Um, but yeah, you worded that great. I mean, while we're on the topic. I'd love to hear your views on some of sort of the political topics before we move on to some of the legal studies you're involved with. Uh, so maybe a quick opinion when it comes to healthcare and education. Um, well, healthcare is an easy one for me because I'm I come from Australia, and in Australia the, the system is basically that you're entitled to a certain level of basic healthcare. You're, it's paid for by a levy. So it's, it's a, a levy that you pay as part of your taxes, and that assures that you'll get basic medical care. Uh, you may be in a, a shared ward in a hospital, um, and, but, but you will get basic care. Um, then you can buy additional insurance, private insurance, to increase the level of coverage. So to ensure that you're in a, a private ward in a hospital, for example, or you get certain other services. Um, but you, you top, that off with, with, top that up with private insurance. But the, the idea is that you're not going to go bankrupt because you can't afford medical care, mm-hmm. and you are going to be assured that you get a basic level of care. So that, that's more or less the, the Australian system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, my personal view, and I'm not speaking on behalf of Hamlin University or anybody else, is my yeah. personal view is that that is a better system. Okay. Um, as opposed to the US system, which relies very heavily on employer-financed health insurance. Yes. So for those who are lucky enough to be working for a corporation, or working for a university, for example, um, have employer-subsidized healthcare. Um, But if uh, you leave that corporation, then you then have to worry about whether you're gonna have healthcare. Where, mm-hmm. you're, where you're going. And some argue that it's a, the, the system here is a disincentive to employ 
in employee mobility. And so it, it's, it's not an economic good thing hmm. to have employees tied to their employer for fear that they're going to lose health care if they go out and start their own business, for example, and, and be an entrepreneur, for example, or mm-hmm. move to a different corporation, do something more productive. Um, so I'm not an economist, but you can see the economic argument that that's a disincentive and, and not yeah. good for the economy. Um, so in terms of healthcare, I think uh, there'll, there'll be a, a huge amount of discussion. It's a, it's a huge political yeah. issue, of course. Um, in the hot area, topic. It's a hot topic, <laughs> yeah. In the area of e- education, um, that, that's, uh, I mean, you could argue that we already have a system of basic education. In other words, you have a system of public, publicly funded schools, um, uh-huh. K through 12, that uh, children are not only have the opportunity of attending, but are required to attend because we have compulsory education. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you, of course, you have charter schools and you have private schools and, and so on and so forth. So um, one might argue that, that you could treat those separately, but you know, fundamentally it comes back to whether you consider things like education and healthcare to be rights which should be protected as opposed to... Um, Goods, which yeah, you commodities, buy. commodities is the term which you I've can heard. buy. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I don't pretend there's an easy answer to any of these things, but it's certainly yeah, as you definitely said, it's complex. A hot topic. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, interesting. Just to hit back on healthcare super fast. So when it hmm. comes to Australia, you like the system more due to your personal experience and how you've sure. seen it work better. Right. Um, when it comes, what is the limit? Because you said they provide basic healthcare. Mm-hmm. What is the limit on their healthcare there? As to where they say, look we're not paying for this, you need to pay for it yourself, or you need private insurance to pay for yourself? I couldn't tell you what the limits are. Quite frankly, I haven't lived in Australia for, for 28 years. <laughs> but um, but the, the, the theory is that you are you do have um, you know, basic care. So you, in other words, a, a general, you, a doctor, you'd be able to, to get basic care at, uh, through a doctor and, and services related to that. Um, but it's when you get to um, providing you know that extra, those extra levels, for instance, and the example I use is, you know, you could be in a, a ward in a hospital where there are multiple beds, but if you want to insure yourself privately, then you can uh, assure that you're in a private room in a uh-huh. hospital, for example. So, um, and it, I mean, it's similar in the U.S. I mean, you, you look at the plans that are available, and you you can see what what you're entitled to under a certain level in in your plan. What, uh-huh. you, what you pay for kind of thing but you until recently of course you didn't have to have medical in, or health insurance in the United States uh, and of course that's a, a hot political issue too it's which issue backfired for care. a lot of a lot of people beforehand but then the opposing argument is now that it's become ultra expensive to have health insurance uh, so yeah I guess sort of to provide I really like hearing that just being able to hear your view on it. And I think it's really valuable to hear different views on it. Um, I guess the opposing argument to that would be when it comes to basic healthcare, basic healthcare would be the easiest to provide an affordable Mm -hmm. quality option. So I could check up with a doctor. It's not going to be free by any means, no matter what type of healthcare system is, it's not going to be free, but that can be very affordable for an individual to afford on their own. Uh, when you start getting into more complex options like like life-saving surgery or even just an orthopedic uh, joint replacement, mm-hmm. 
those are what get extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. And then that's sort of where that can be difficult mm -hmm. in the fact that you're like, okay, where do we draw this line mm -hmm. for what you can receive? Mm -hmm. sure. And then that's where the controversy goes every which way. Yeah. And um, the answers to that will, will differ, uh, of course. But, but I think that the, the bottom line, so to speak, is uh -huh. that you have a, a basic level of care um, that will ensure that you're not going to go bankrupt, for example, because uh -huh. you can't pay your, your medical bills, for example. Which is a big problem in the U.S. I, th I think last time I read a statistic, it was like 60% of bankruptcies come from medical bills, which right. I think needs to be stopped and whether, no matter what the solution is. Right. Um, yeah, but thinking about, about the Australian healthcare, it reminded me of another uh, thing about Australia, which sometimes come, comes up, but it, and it's unrelated to healthcare, it's, it's uh, voting, is oh, that voting in Australia is compulsory. Really? In other words, you get fined if you don't vote. And has that led to? It means you have very high turnouts. Um, Australia regularly has over, well over 90% turnout in elections, of course. Now there is, uh, you, you, it's compulsory to vote. It's not compulsory to actually fill out the ballot correctly. Oh. So we have a thing in Australia called the donkey vote, um, <laughs> which, it, which is not a vote for Democrats. It's, it's a vote, uh, basically, uh, someone who just either you know, goes one, two, three, four, five down the ballot or in some other way sort of messes up the ballot kind of thing. Um, and so we call those informal votes. Uh, they're not counted. Um, oh, okay. But so, but it is compulsory to actually vote. Um, so, do you think that's something that should be um, tacked on to the United States? Personally, yes. Although I see, I, I, I'd be the first person to see why it will never happen in the U.S. Because you know, voting is, that would that that goes back to this infringement on your on your individual liberty to choose whether or not to vote, kind of thing. Whereas yeah. Australia. Um, it's always been compulsory. Now, what I explained to my students when I took them to Australia um, back in 2011, I went to Australia, I took uh, some Hamlin students on a study abroad trip. Awesome. To explain to them, because, and our topic was comparative constitutional law and politics. Um, and I explained to them that, look, Australia's background and experience is different from that of the US. Australia didn't fight a revolutionary war. Australia was a penal colony. Not only that, it was a military penal colony. In other words, the, the jailers were, were soldiers uh, when, when New South Wales was first colonised. So Australians come from a different background and perspective and are used to the government doing things, more things for them than the US is experienced. Interesting. So it's a different, I think it's a different way of looking at things. Um, and of course, Australia has a different political system, although the Australian constitution is modelled very closely on the US constitution. We have a... Uh, House of Representatives, a Senate, we're a federal system, um, uh, but it's still, it's a Westminster parliamentary system of government in Australia, as opposed to the US's separation of powers um, system. So so it's a different form of government, but with, with lots of similar, uh, what, I, what, I say to what I say to Australians who come to the US is that uh, there are you know, lots of similarities here but just enough things to make you realize you're in a foreign country. <laughs> and that's going to be true of Americans going to Australia as well. But yeah, saying. so voting is, is compulsory. The other big difference, which I think is starting to catch on here um, in many places, and so in, in the Twin Cities in, in Minnesota, is uh, instant runoff voting. Huh. Uh, Australians have had that for uh, 
hundred years. Um, and we call it preferential voting. And by, by that, you're indicating a preference amongst the candidates uh, as opposed to the US and the UK's first-past-the-post system. So whoever gets the most number of votes wins. Okay. Even though you may only have 40% of the total votes that are cast. Uh, oh. It's a plurality. So you, you get 40%, another gets 30%, another gets 30%. You win with the 40%. Okay. Even though 60% of the people who voted didn't want you. Huh. Um, whereas Australia, in the House of Representatives, the lower house, uses a preferential system of voting where you indicate, say, one, two, three, if there are three candidates. The person with the fewest number of votes is first first votes is eliminated and their preferences are distributed to the other two candidates so that you'll always have someone with 50.1% of the vote. Um, Interesting. It's controversial and there was a lawsuit in Minnesota um, alleging that it was unconstitutional, huh. uh, that uh, instant runoff voting was unconstitutional. The Supreme Court said it was constitutional. And so it's used in, for instance, St. Paul's um, city council elections use instant runoff voting. Minneapolis uses instant runoff voting and other, uh, other municipalities use it. Uh, Maine, for example, uses it in statewide elections. So, or certainly in elections for the uh, Maine legislature. So, and it's something that, I, that is gradually, gradually developing in, in popularity and use here in the United States. And so it means that whoever is elected has a majority of the votes cast, not a plurality. So it's another, another interesting contrast. Yeah, that, is, that is interesting. Another yeah. thing that came to mind too, and correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Australia, I'm not sure how long ago, if, or if it was really recent, uh, banned gun purchases? Um, up to a point. It was actually New Zealand is the most recent example. Oh, New Zealand, with the, okay. With the attack on the, the mosque. And New Zealand moved very quickly to ban assault-style weapons um, um, in a uh, bipart very bipartisan fashion. Um, Australia did a similar thing um, a number of years back where there was a, a massacre at Port Arthur in Tasmania, a uh, big uh, important tourist attraction. It's the convict settlement, the remains of the convict settlement in, in Tasmania in, at Port Arthur, which is south of Hobart. I hate that a funny interjection, but it's because everyone wanted to see the Tasmanian devils. <laughs> well, the, the convicts who were sent to Tasmania really didn't care about the Tasmanian devils because oh, the convicts were, who were sent to Tasmania were actually the recidivists. They, oh. they were the worst of the worst. Wow. They were convicts who'd been sent to uh, Botany Bay and then re-offended. Okay. Um, so they were sent to Port Arthur, which was even worse conditions than the where they were held in New South Wales. And so the remains of the convict settlement in Port Arthur are now an important tourist uh, attraction. Uh, so it's a fascinating place to visit. Huh. Um, so no, the convicts there were, were not uh, terribly worried too much about the wildlife. And it, it was supposed to be escape proof. The only way you could get, a, get out of Port Arthur was by swimming, swimming across what the convicts were told were shark infested uh, waters. But in any event, there was a, a massacre at, uh, at Port Arthur where uh, dozens of people were killed. The Australian government moved, moved very quickly after that to restrict um, gun sales and gun, own, gun ownership. And it was a conservative government that, that did that very quickly after. after Interesting. After. Yeah. Probably won't see that in, in well, different the systems. United States well, remember, today. In, but there's no such thing as the Second Amendment in Australia. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, there is no Bill of Rights in, in 
Australia in the same way that there is in the United States. So um, you don't have that argument. Um, and, but the, 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 certainly there was discussion about limitations on people's freedom to, to own weapons. And now in Australia, uh, farmers need to have firearms, uh, shotguns and so on. Uh, um, they have to deal with uh, kangaroos, for example. Uh, <laughs> I heard the kangaroos Kangaroos are a pest. Everywhere. <laughs> yeah, they are. I mean, you see road signs in Australia where you see deer uh, signs on the side of the road. You see kangaroos. And Tasmanian devils, actually, for that matter, <laughs> but um, but you'll see those signs on the side of the road. So, but there were you know, there, so there were restrictions pl- placed in Australia, and um, it, it it is a different system of, of government and a different a different constitutional political system because um, the US, of course, has the, the the Second Amendment and the and the Bill of Rights more generally. Now you could we could uh, we could discuss at length what the Second Amendment actually means, um, but that's a, a, a topic for another day, probably. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, w- I wanted to ask, though, what has been, if you know, what's been the resulting data from that, 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 uh, that addition of gun limitation well, in Australia? Well, it's, it's, it's hard to tell. Bec- I mean, th- there, are, there have been, and there continue to have been, incidents in Australia um, of people using firearms to commit multiple murders. And I, I'm talking not about, I'm talking more about uh, the types of, sort of mass shootings that we see in the US, not to the same extent that, that we've seen here and not as frequently as we've seen here, and certainly not school shootings that we've, we've seen here. And I, I, I don't have the data, it's not my, really my area of expertise, but anecdotally, um, it certainly seems clear that restricting um, sales of those types of weapons has limited the opportunity of people to commit those kinds of, of atrocities, mm. and that's clearly what's behind the New Zealand government's action in in banning assault-style weapons is to prevent those kinds of atrocities. Yeah, because I had heard that the number of homicides due to gun violence had decreased significantly. Right. Um, and again, it's a different different kind of perspective, cultural, different perspective. I mean, one of the things that you know. I, I, Americans have a certain view about Australia, so uh-huh. the idea that, well, you know, there are kangaroos hopping up and down the main street of Sydney. Well, no, there aren't. <laughs> um, Australians sometimes have a view, a stereotypical view of the US, that everybody is walking around um, with a, a holster and, and packing a gun and that you have shootouts at high noon in the main street. A little duel. Right, exactly. <laughs> so there's this, this stereotypical view, of, which, which, you know, is media and driven and, and uh, popular um, uh, films and so on driven this perspective. But I think it's very true that there is this cultural difference between not only Australia and the US, but Europe and the US probably as well, is that in Australia and, and places like that, there is a, a, a lower tolerance for violence, for example, than there is in the United States. By the contrast, um, there's a, a, a higher tolerance for things uh, relating to sex, for example in Australia and places like that. Huh. Whereas in, a, in the United States, there's l- less tolerance for that. And, you know, they come from the puritanical um, background in, yeah. in the US and so on and so forth. But, but there's this, this disjunction between what's tolerated in the media and in, and in films and in TV and so on. Um, I think there's much lower tolerance for violence in, in other places than there is in the US. It's one of the things that struck me when I first came here. Does that translate to the media in Australia as well? Because I actually uh, read about, uh, I forget his name, but he did 
studies, and his main study was how violence in media um, leads to increased violence and aggression oh, yeah. in our everyday lives. And right. it's fascinating because we take it for granted, right? We're playing Call of Duty on an Xbox or watching a TV show. You know, like, we're watching Braveheart, which right. is legendary, but it's just we don't even... It doesn't connect at all. This is really harsh. Oh, it's violence. It's, it's extremely. It's very topical right now. In fact, Hamlin put on a, a series of TEDx talks uh, in April, and one of the speakers is, was an academic, um, actually a visiting uh, fellow here at Hamlin, who uh, he teaches at Metro State. And um, what, what he was his area of study is uh, violence and social media, and and the media generally, but social media. And um, how the interplay between between those two, and what we might do about um, you know the prevalence of, of violence. Because you're right. I mean, there is this idea that the the more you are exposed to that kind of thing, then the more acceptable it becomes, kind of thing. So yeah, it's a very very topical. Area. Yeah, and again, I, I, outside <laughs> my area of expertise, but it's one that you know you. Know, you you certainly are yeah, are and what to. frightens me most about that is when it comes to children being mm-hmm. exposed to that at young ages, and it just oh. becomes just part of the like just you just take it for granted. Yeah. You don't even think twice about it. Right. Um, but yeah, and then going back to guns, just one statement I wanted to make with how much regulation is involved with the United States in the legal system right now. I mean, not even representing any opinion, but I am just shocked that there isn't more regulation when it does come to guns, given that you have to have all this licensing, and, oh, not licensing, that's the wrong word, but you have to go through certain steps to get drugs from a pharmacy and all sorts of different things, but that doesn't relate to guns. But like you said, you bring up, it's sort of the culture of America and mm-hmm. how we have the Second Amendment. Right. Well, you also have, you have the Second Amendment, but you also have an organisa- organisation like the NRA, for example, which is, has been very powerful, a very well-funded organisation. It seems to have run into a few problems recently with, with allegations about finances and, and so on. But um, So you have uh, a, a very powerful force advocating for uh, very limited restrictions on, on firearms. It's a combination of... Um, <laughs> It's a combination of um, epic ringtone. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's a combination of the the Constitution, where you have the the Second Amendment uh, protections, and you also have uh, Supreme Court decisions interpreting the Constitution, in particularly interpreting the Second Amendment, um, where um, you have the the Heller case, which um, which um, invalidated some restrictions on gun ownership, um, but nevertheless uh, left open the possibility of government restricting um, uh, area, uh, restricting um, assault weapons, for example. Um, so um, that's going to be a continuing debate. I mean, mm-hmm. that debate is not going to go away um, because you, you have this interplay between the Second Amendment, the Supreme Court's interpretations, and, and continued movements to restrict sales of, of um, particularly automatic uh, assault style weapons as we continue to have instances of mass shootings involving those kinds of weapons and you know, many people will argue well you don't need an assault weapon to shoot at a target or um, to hunt for example 
why do you need to own an assault weapon? Why don't we put background checks to ensure that um, felons don't have these types of weapons, for example, yeah. um, or you know, people who are restricted in other ways from, from owning weapons. So, yeah, but that's a political, political discussion, a political debate that, again, I'm sure we're going to continue to have. Um, yeah, for sure. And sorry, I'm just gathering my thoughts. No, it's just crazy how much, how influential the law is in every aspect of life. So before we really move on to your career here in the United States and uh, some of the things you've accomplished and some of the topics that you are an expert in, <laughs> uh, we've talked about some differing things from Australia to against the United States. Mm -hmm. What are some differences in the Constitution specifically with the laws itself that really stick out to you when it comes to the U.S. versus Australia? Well, I think the big thing is the, the lack of um, the, the Bill of Rights equivalent. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's actually something that I'm, I'm looking at at the moment. Um, one of the, the books that I had on my desk is you, uh, when you came in this morning, is uh, actually entitled Bills of Rights in Australia. Oh, wow. It's one of the things that, that I'm interested in doing a bit more more research and writing on at the moment is comparing the United States and Australia in terms of its attitude towards um, r rights, individual and, and social rights. But uh, that's probably the one of the biggest contrasts. The, it flows from the different types of systems that we have where the US, you have the separation of powers, you have the legislature, you have the executive, and you have the, uh, the judiciary. In, when you have a Westminster system of government like Australia and, and the UK, for example, where Parliament is supreme and the executive is, is located in the Parliament, so the, the Prime Minister is the head of the executive, so he's also rather like the President is not a member of Congress, the Prime Minister is a member of the, of the legislature in a Westminster system. So the, the, the theory is that what, what Parliament grants, Parliament can take away. Hmm. as opposed to you having a, a written Bill of Rights, which are amendments to the Constitution, which are interpreted by the United States Supreme Court, yeah. um, and which cannot be taken away because they're part of the Constitution. You that you have to work with, no right, matter they're, what. Now they're, in, they're interpreted by the Supreme Court, of course. In different ways. In different ways. But in, in the Westminster uh, system, then it, it's Parliament which is sovereign there, subject to what whatever is in the Australian Constitution, for example, which, as I said, is modelled quite extensively on, on the US Constitution. The Australian Constitutional Conventions occurred in the 1890s, and uh, there was a you know, strong influence of um, you know, following what had been done in, in the United States, particularly because Australia is a federal system of, of states. And so... Um, you have um, uh, provisions in the Australian Constitution providing that trade between the states shall be absolutely free. Similarly, we have you know, the idea that trade between the states in the United States should be free. So you had those kinds of certainly very similar influences in, in Australia. And just as in the US, the Australian High Court, so the, the Supreme Court equivalent in Australia is the, the High Court of Australia, interprets the Australian Constitution um, in the same way that the, the U.S. Supreme Court interprets the U.S. Constitution. One of the controversial things that's happened recently in Australia is the, is the question of dual citizenship, because yeah. the Australian Constitution specifically provides that you cannot be 
a dual citizen and also be a member of parliament. Uh, you, could, you have to be an Australian citizen, you cannot be a dual citizen. And so in a number of cases, parliamentarians have been found to have a, a dual citizenship or at least an entitlement to dual citizenship, which they haven't renounced. And that's placed, and in some cases they've had to leave parliament because of that constitutional requirement, the way Interesting. The, uh, the High Court has interpreted that provision quite strictly that provision of the Australian Constitution. So you have very many similar similarities in that yeah. respect, but so, so the, but the constitutions uh, themselves, similar in terms of um, the, the structure of, of government because you have a federal system, but on the other hand, you'd have this, this, the different Westminster system as opposed to the yeah. uh, separation of powers that we have here. Yeah, it's really cool to hear the comparisons and the differences, mm -hmm. especially from an expert like yourself. Uh, well, I'm drawing <laughs> again, drawing back on my political science. I love it. Days. I love it. Um, so uh, let's transition to your to the United States, mm -hmm. specifically your career. Before you became a professor, yeah, you practiced as an attorney. Correct. Uh, mainly in family law. That's right. Yeah, I practiced mainly family law. I, as I, say, I did do some other things as well. Uh, in fact, the last case I had was a, a contracts case. Um, uh, uh, but pr primarily I was I was doing family law. Yeah. Interesting. And so, and that was different than what you had originally, I'm inferring that's different than sort of your original intentions from your undergraduate. Yeah, actually, uh, it made sense for me when I finished my bachelor's degree to apply to, to join Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs, the, our State Department. So mm -hmm. I did, and actually I was a diplomat for five years oh, in, in the Australian Foreign Service. Um, after I, gr I graduated from uh, university, um, the process takes about a year, and then I, then I started as a, as a diplomat in the Australian Foreign Service and was in Canberra for a year doing training and then had a posting in Nairobi, Kenya for two years, which was actually a great post for us because unlike the US, Australia does not have diplomatic uh, mission in every country in the world. Okay. We're represented, but we don't actually have a physical mission in every country of the world. So our post in Nairobi covered Kenya, uh, Uganda, Seychelles, Somalia, Ethiopia, and Djibouti. Oh, that's unique. So a lot of travel involved. Uh, <laughs> and my job as uh, my first area of responsibility as the as the third secretary the junior political officer was the Seychelles actually so traveled to Seychelles a, a few times politically a very interesting place in the 19 early 1980s it was a member of the British Commonwealth always remained a member of the British Commonwealth but it was also a member of the non-aligned movement and um, was a, a had a, a left-wing government and uh, the security forces were, were assisted by the the North Koreans and the East Germans then in the, wow. in the early 1980s. So interesting, but a very uh, beautiful alliance. place, very beautiful place. Huh. And now, of course, Seychelles is an upscale tourist destination. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. It's uh, I haven't been back there. I must go there, but some, but it's very upscale. Uh, Need to put it on the uh, yeah bucket the list. bucket in the bucket list. So yeah, so there was. Uh, but then I ended up going to Uganda uh, more often than not, um, and uh, I uh, was responsible for administering Australia's aid program in those countries so I, I visited uh, for, for aid purposes and, but also for political uh, reasons as well and so I ended up going to Uganda more often than that. and that was a fascinating place it was after Idi Amin uh, Milton Obote was the Prime Minister then but there was a, re a revolution or a, a, a resistance going on then and so lots of human rights issues um, then which was which was um, eye-opening um, but a, a lot of very interesting travel 
wow. that, in that role. So I had two years there, and then I returned to, to Canberra, had a, another year or two in the department, and then wanted to get some private sector experience. So okay. I went to work for a consulting engineering firm in Sydney. I'm not an engineer, as, as you know, um, <laughs> but uh, I, they had a very big international practice. So I was working with uh, engineers, developing resumes, putting proposals together, hmm. uh, and so on. And um, and uh, that was interesting work. I, I also became general or acting general manager of a consortium of five different consulting firms, of which the engineering firm that I was uh, part of was was part of. And so that gave me some management experience. And then got further management experience. I went to work for. Uh, uh, the Institute of Corporate Managers, which is also the Institute of Chartered Secretaries. So we represented um, company secretaries, corporate lawyers, um, and I was the New South Wales State Manager and then the professional National Professional Development Manager for this management institute, which is where I started studying law. They, um, we represented um, you know, corporate lawyers, company secretaries, and hmm. uh, we didn't have a lawyer on staff in the institute. and so. Uh, the institute concluded around about the same time that I concluded that it would be a good idea for me to, to, to study law. So I actually started doing the Barristers and Solicitors Admissions Board course at Sydney University. It was a part-time course. And so I'd done the introductory course and contracts. And this then 1991 came around and I moved to the, to the US. So the question was, uh, well, where do I go to law school? And we, uh -huh. we decided on William Mitchell. And do I get credit for what I studied? And so I I remember I was talking to the then dean at William Mitchell and explained that I'd done the introductory course and contracts, and he said, oh, contracts, that's all English law, you get credit for that. So I got credit for the first year contracts course. <laughs> nice. that's, that's right, a lot of it is based on English law. Yeah. Uh, there are, of course, differences in the US and, and so on, but uh, so I did get credit for that, which was good. But I have a, a US law degree. I, I'm not qualified to practice in Australia. I, oh, okay. I, I have a Minnesota law degree. And that's awesome to hear that you took advantage of a rather golden moment when they needed someone to step up and know well, the law. It made sense personally for me at the same time. I have uh, a brother who's a practicing attorney. I have another brother who has a law degree but has never actually practiced an attorney and they're actually both married to attorneys. So um, <laughs> I guess somehow the gene, even though my great-great-great-grandfather was asked to take a seven-year holiday in Australia at the Crown's expense, um, uh, we ended up on the right side of the bar. In fact, I was joking with a, a judge out in Washington County. He was, he was telling me how his ancestors were hanged by the British for treason. And so I said, well, judge, at least we're both side of, on the right side of the bar now. <laughs> so, uh -huh. That's but, pretty legal blood. Yeah. Knowledge, knowledgeable legal blood. Well, so when it comes to family law, uh, I'd assume that the biggest, the biggest part of what you're dealing with is divorces. Mm -hmm. That's true. What percentage of divorces in the United States have to, is it 100% that have to see a lawyer or have to use the law to solve their divorce? Or is there, what percentage have to use the law to, to fix you their know, I don't know that it? I don't know that I could put a percentage on. I don't know that anyone's put a percentage on that. I mean, the, the, the overall trend is to trying to reduce lawyer involvement in family law matters, particularly dissolution, divorce matters, um, because of the, the cost and the stress and the adversarial nature of the system. So there have been a number of, of movements which have continued to grow towards, for example, collaborative divorce, where you have 
um, attorneys and other professionals working with the, the parties to try and resolve issues that they have uh, arising out of the divorce and um, doing it in a collaborative kind of way. Um, so you also have a movement here in Minnesota to even get the courts out of the system and, and it's more or less moving, or at least there was a bill in the legislature moving towards the idea of a, of a private divorce, which um, many oppose. Mm-hmm. Personally, I think is a bad idea too. But um, but but you have seen an increasing trend towards that because divorce and family law in general, but but divorce can be an expensive process. I was going to say the first thing came to mind was right. Um, the money side. I mean, I tried when I was practicing to to be as affordable as possible because I had clients who could never afford to pay three hundred and fifty dollars an hour for for an attorney in, in downtown Minneapolis or, or St. Paul, for example. And then you have uh, folks who can't afford an attorney, but you do have services available for uh, low income uh, clients. You know, have uh, legal services and so on. But there's this vast bulk of people who can't afford the the high priced attorneys earn too much money, have too much money for legal aid, for example, how are they going to get effective representation? Mm-hmm. So I tried to make myself as affordable as I could, um, and but still there's a crying need for good family law attorneys. There's, there's always going to, that's always going to be the case. Attorneys, uh, new lawyers, often don't go into family law because um, it's regarded as being very stressful, uh, and it huh. is. Um, and, um, yeah, the you don't get paid as well as you as you might practicing other areas of law, uh, but there's still a, a crying need for good attorneys practicing family law. Interesting, and that's I think that's really admirable of you to want to help in that in that middle ground, uh, just out of the goodness of your heart. It sounds well, like. I mean, but not bad yet. So I mean, partly. I mean, obviously, you're still afford, making you still, good money. Yeah, right. You still you still need to be paid for your services. But but in family law, sometimes that's a problem. Sometimes is actually um, you know, getting paid for for what you do. Huh. And so when it comes to family law, it, if I'm not mis- if I'm not mistaken, it's entirely on on the state level, correct? Yeah, in the U.S., family domestic relations law has traditionally been considered a state matter. Um, so the the federal um, government has largely practiced this legal doctrine of abstention, uh, of not getting involved in domestic relations matters, which have been considered matters left to the states. Now, there are certain constitutional uh, questions that have arisen that have gone to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, back in the 19th century, the question of polygamy went to the United States Supreme Court, and the United States Supreme Court said that no, polygamy is not <laughs> available in, in the US. Um, most recently, of course, it's, came up, it's come up in the context of same-sex marriage, um, hmm. and um, the United States Supreme Court has uh, handed down the uh, Obergefell decision in recent years, which uh, basically said that states could not uh, prohibit same-sex marriages. And so it, there, are, there are federal constitutional provisions. Ironically, um, that came after the first um, challenges to restrictions on same-sex marriage, which occurred at the state level, uh, a case out of Iowa called uh, Barnum, where uh, lawyers challenged Iowa's restriction on same-sex marriage under the Iowa Constitution rather than the United States Constitution. Because states can grant greater rights than the U.S. Constitution, 
they cannot grant lesser rights than the US Constitution, but they can grant greater rights. And so the lawyers in, in that case figured that they might not get a good result out of the United States Supreme Court if they challenged under the, uh, the 14th Amendment to the US Constitution, but had a greater chance of success if they challenged Iowa's equivalent of the Equal Protection Clause and actually succeeded. The Iowa Supreme Court ruled that prohibitions on same-sex marriage, restrictions on same-sex marriage, violated the Iowa Constitution. Hmm. Now, it, subsequently, some of those judges in the majority were voted out of office in Iowa. Now, whether they sort of didn't campaign effectively or, or at all is a, is a different question, but it did hmm. have that sort of uh, after effect. But of course, more recently, we've had the, the US Supreme Court um, hand down the Obergefell decision. So in those areas there, and some other areas, um, for instance, uh, rights of grandparents to visitation with grandchildren has, has gone to the United States Supreme Court. But generally, you're right. Um, it, domestic relations has traditionally been a matter for the states. Hmm. It's really good to hear those those differences. Um, I love it. Uh, and then, so also when it comes to family law, a huge part of it, and you you mentioned it earlier with the paper, some of the papers you've written uh, with domestic abuse, mm -hmm. uh, which truly is a big problem. I was reading some yeah. statistics. Uh, it said about one in every four women experience abuse. Uh, from an intimate partner, mm -hmm. uh, one in every nine men, which mm -hmm. I found uh, surprising, uh, experienced the same. I represent. Uh, I represented both men and women in in domestic abuse cases. Quite honestly, I I tended to represent women more. Okay. Um, and that wasn't necessarily a conscious choice, but it just that's the way it worked out. Both in actually all of my family law cases, but there were uh, certainly cases where where men have been victims of domestic violence. The statistics you mention are uh, are accurate. That. Uh, and it continues to be a, 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 a very serious problem. Yeah, so do the laws we have in place help? I mean, well, I guess the first question I want to ask is how can we prevent and stop the problem of abuse and domestic abuse? Um, well, laws play an important role. Um, education is the other important factor. It, it generally conceded that abuse, domestic violence, is learned behavior. And so statistics seem to suggest, research suggests that children who are exposed to domestic violence are more likely to be abusers themselves when they grow up. Wow. Because they, they learn that a violent reaction is an appropriate reaction um, or, or believe that it's an appropriate reaction because they see it modeled. And so um, educating um, education, I think, like many things, is is something that we could devote. That's heart wrenching. To. And so, do the laws we have in place right now, do, I mean, in your view, are they efficient in helping prevent domestic abuse as much as possible? And and how could we improve those laws? Well, by and large, by and large, they are. I mean, Minnesota has a system of um, orders for protection where. Petitioners can obtain orders for protection, which can be up, last up to as long as two years and can be renewed um, as a means of uh, uh, preventing further violence to victims of domestic violence. So it's, it's like most things. You have the, the prevention versus the what do you do when the, uh, when the violence has taken place mm -hmm. to prevent further exposure to, to violence. And orders of protection, of, co of course, can 
be obtained for family members, uh, not just the, uh, the victim herself. And I'll say herself because it's usually, usually women. Um, but um, so Minnesota has a fairly robust system of, uh, of domestic protection, protecting victims of, of domestic violence. Can we do more? Yes. Do we need more resources in the area? Yes. Um, but uh, Minnesota is, is a state that has, has taken that issue very seriously. By and large, they're, By doing, large. they're doing a good job. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, sad, it's just sad to me that you, can, you could do as much as you can, but when it comes to offenders of abuse and it comes to, and no matter how severe of penalties you enforce on people for abuse, What's sad is studies have shown that people don't take into account those, um, sorry, I totally just lost my train of thought. People don't take into account those punishments when they are committing these crimes. They, it's, it's a, it's a of the moment thing right. that it happens and with abuse, as I'm sure you know, well, I've heard it happens over and over and over again. But it's not one of those things that they're taking into account. Oh yeah, if I do this, I'm gonna get 15 years in prison. It's well, I think that's true of, of most criminal law. Yeah, all criminal law the, for sure. I mean, the, the whole question of you know uh, purposes of punishment, uh, theories of punishment, you know, deterrence, retribution, uh, and so on and so forth. Deterrence being the idea that well, um, if we have a 25 year sentence for for this particular crime, then it's going to deter people from committing that crime. But as you know, uh, yeah. Would you agree that will, studies have shown that that people will often, well, usually, <laughs> don't think. Well, wait a minute. I'm not going to do this because I'm going to get 25 years in prison if yeah. I do it. It doesn't seem to work like that quite often. So. Humans aren't as rational as, as well, and that's true of family. Like what I said to my clients uh, in family. Uh, well, I didn't. Uh, one thing you quickly discover is that rationality is one of the first things that goes out of the window in a in a family law case. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say to my clients, look. You really should settle this case rather than have someone in a black robe decide important things about the rest of your life. Um, but in, uh, sometimes I had to go to court because uh, people couldn't or wouldn't settle uh, particular issues. So the law is substantively very interesting, but it, it, it can be stressful, particularly where kids are involved, as you might expect uh, in family law. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask next, next is so much of family law pertains to, to children. Mm-hmm. And with the, the current laws in place, are they doing a good job of protecting children and putting children in the best situation possible? Um, again, I mean, the laws are, are, are in place. Often, often the so question similar is how, to abuse. Well, often the, the question is, well, how consistently and effectively are, are laws enforced? Okay. Um, and, uh, but there are laws in place to, to protect children. Children in Minnesota... Um, uh, Often represented by guardians ad litem in family law matters, and where where there's violence involved or abuse, then a court must appoint a guardian ad litem to represent a child's best interests. In other circumstances, the court may appoint a guardian ad litem. The guardian ad litem is there to represent the, the child's best interests to the court. Doesn't represent the child. So, in a divorce in Minnesota, any children of the parties aren't entitled to independent legal representation. And that's why it can be so stressful for, for lawyers who represent uh, either the mother or the father in a, in a divorce because they represent the mother or the father. They don't represent the children. Um, and uh, 
So children aren't entirely independent legal representation, but often they'll have a guardian representing their, their interests to the court uh, and advising the court on what is in the child's best interest, because that's the, the, the fundamental standard for making decisions about uh, children in family law matters is what is in the child's best interest, and now to some extent what is in the family's best interest as well. But fundamentally it's you know, what is in the child's best interest. Yeah, it's, you brought up earlier that there's a lot of stress involved with, mm-hmm. with family law attorneys and it, it makes sense just because, uh, I mean, abuse and, and children are just really tough topics to, to deal with. But it must be satisfying when you are able to help people in those it is. situations. And it is. And I've had cases, as I said, that, that went to trial and were uh, very, very seriously contested matters. But then there are other cases where um, I've actually um, de- uh, become quite, quite good friends with mm-hmm. an ex-client. You, you, a client is not your friend, and that's what I tell, what I used to tell clients is, uh, I'm not your friend. Um, you need you need someone who you could talk to independently. I'm not your therapist. You need someone you could you could talk to professionally about the issues that are going on there. And I'm not the spouse you're divorcing. So, um, <laughs> Please but, differentiate right, me from exactly. that. Right, exactly. But yeah, but there are. But yeah, you, know, you establish uh, good relations with uh, with with clients and and actually with a, with opposing counsel too. I mean, there were attorneys who I was opposed to in uh, in divorce cases, family law cases, who I, I thought they did a, a really excellent job representing their clients and they did so very ethically. Um, and so you develop very good relations with, with other attorneys as well. Interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's truly amazing that you, you did that. And then you became a professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here specifically, uh, the department at Hamlin isn't a political science major, but it's a right. legal studies major. What What is the difference there? Well, often um, legal stu- undergraduate legal studies departments uh, might be run out of a political science or associated with a political science or another another uh, social science uh, discipline. Um, and one of the things to hear at Hamlin is that all of us uh, faculty members in, in uh, legal studies are lawyers, and we all have different practice experiences. Um, That's so, so unique. Yeah, it, it's, it, I th- I, it probably happens somewhere else, but, but <laughs> often um, it, it, you don't have lawyers actually uh, as, as the, the faculty members in a, in a legal studies department. So that is something that we're, we're, we're very proud of here at Hamlin is that we are lawyers and we do have these different practice backgrounds. It means we can draw on our links with the legal community, hmm. uh, other lawyers, um, judges, uh, referees, former clients. Um, who can come in and, and talk to the students, uh, and that's always a good experience for the, for the students. What advantages does that provide for your students that want to go into the, the legal world? Well, I think we can give them a, a very good perspective on what it's like to, to work in the, in the legal field uh, uh-huh. as a practicing attorney. We have a, a ABA-approved paralegal certificate program here at Hamlin, and so we some of our students go on to become paralegals and then go on to get a law degree sometimes, but sometimes they're going to work as, as paralegals. Um, so we can give them a, a pretty good wide perspective on what it's what it's like to practice in, in the legal field and in preparing students for law school uh, as well, because many of our students will graduate and, and go on to law school. That's awesome. 
Um, so so you, t- you teach a large variety of classes mm-hmm. uh, in this department. Uh, to name a few, you have, you have legal, you teach legal research and writing, uh, evidence, international law, uh, family law. What are some of the main themes you want your students to get out of the classes that you teach? Um, I, I, the, the thing that I try to do most is to impart um, a basic, basic legal concepts, depending on the, the course that we're, that we're teaching. Um, it's not like law school, where you can drill down very deeply into a particular subject area or topic. We, we have to cover a more surface area, although occasionally we, we dig down a little bit deeper. Um, so in contracts, for example, we're teaching the, the um, fundamentals of contract formation, interpretation, um, uh, remedies, and so on. Uh, in evidence, we'll cover the federal rules of evidence, where Minnesota rules differ, and, and uh, how, how we apply evidentiary rules. But what I'm trying to do in, in these courses is teach them from a, a, a critical thinking perspective so that um, students are actually understanding why we have rules of evidence, for example, how those rules work, and how they can apply them uh, critically in different uh, hypothetical situations. So I think that's where I try and, and focus most of my energy, is in getting the students to, to try and think deeply about the, the particular topic or issues that, that we're covering. Hmm, I love that. And on, the, uh, on your page on the Hamlin website, I wrote down a quote that I liked uh, that was by you, and it said, legal studies is an ideal discipline to explore how society organizes relationships between individuals and groups and creates and applies rules to resolve disputes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really valuable in the fact that we think about why the law is there, why do we need it, and I think you hit that on the point in resolving disputes. Mm -hmm. And I think history has shown that I mean, even from the beginning of time, as, as humans, we're, we're making transactions with one another. We are having conversations with one another. We have problems with one another. And we have these disputes. And so, so often, we have struggled to resolve those disputes on our own. So we've required a third party. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly where the law comes in, mm-hmm. where everyone agrees. Well. Hopefully everyone agrees. Or are compelled. <laughs> are compelled uh, to have rules in place that help us to resolve those disputes right. so that life is more fair. Right. I mean, it's a way of regulating these relationships. And um, that's why, you know, as I said earlier, that the, the, the idea that uh, the United States and other places are uh, uh, governed by laws rather than men is a very important one. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, you know, the, the law is something that um, we respect and something which we can turn to to either vindicate our rights or protect um, others. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, a re- uh, not only an interesting area to, to be teaching, but an exciting and important area to be teaching. I love it. And one of the classes I would be interested in sitting in on to hear is the legal research and writing class because I think about we all have that stereotype of a lawyer of lawyer in the courtroom Mm -hmm. you know making these emphatic declarations Mm -hmm. and and saying these incredible things to 
to win the, the battle. Mm -hmm. uh, but we never think about how much research and preparation goes into it. Yeah, I mean, legal, legal, we actually call it legal writing and research. Now, we've sort of changed our curriculum a little bit, uh, but um, it's a way of thinking. And that's what I tell students when we, when we introduce legal writing and research to them. It, it's, uh, it's a way of thinking. Lawyers uh, think, uh, the, the acronym that we use is IRAC, Issue, Rule, Analysis, Conclusion. That's a way of thinking. And uh, in a way, you start, you're learning a new language when you start thinking about legal writing and research. And um, it's a way of, of breaking down uh, an issue or a problem into its component parts, the issues that are involved, isolating what rules apply in this situation, applying those rules, and then concluding uh, so that you can give advice to a client um, or argue uh, a position to the court based on how you've analysed the rules that apply to this issue. So it's a, it's a, it's a way of thinking about, uh, about the law. Yeah, and I'm a big believer in preparation. Mm -hmm. I think preparation is the biggest factor in, in success. Right. Well, as a saying, one of my students actually um, did it for me after one of the courses is uh, proper proper preparation prevents, and then I'll omit the, the next word, performance. So uh. proper preparation <laughs> prevents bad performance. Oh, uh, nice. So, I, yeah. I'm sort of inferring the right, word right. that he and used so there. It and so, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it, that uh, success is what ninety percent preparation and hard work and ten percent genius. Uh, it, yeah. It's uh, preparation is very important. It's true of lawyers as it's true of, of any other field. I mean, it's when I I umpire Australian football here, and one of the things we have to make sure is that we're prepared to go out and yeah. umpire. Uh, which and, by and the way, the rules. which by the way is awesome. <laughs> well, I think I think it's the greatest football <laughs> code ever invented. But then I'm biased. So. I love it and. But to add to that, for all the kids that have that stereotype idea about being an attorney, mm -hmm. that might turn them away from it. Because sometimes people oh. don't like that the requirement of long hours uh, researching and, and preparing. Mm -hmm. But it, but it's it's very very important. Yeah, it's compulsory. It, it's yeah, it's gonna it's gonna contribute contribute enormously to whatever success you have. And but. The stereotype of the lawyer as being uh, the, the type A, hard-driven person in the courtroom not is a stereotype because many lawyers would never even dream of setting foot in a courtroom. Um, and they, they do transactional work. They draft contracts. Um, they, they do work that never requires them to be, be in the courtroom. There's a huge range of, uh, of work you can do as a lawyer. You can have a law degree and not actually practice as a lawyer. In fact, a law degree is a very good one as a way of of developing this this um, form of thinking and approaching problems, which um, uh, employers looking for a non-lawyer might might value. I mean, that's that's one of the values of a liberal ed arts education is that um, employers tell us constantly, you know, you don't need to send us people with all of that substantive knowledge. What we're looking for are people who can think critically, solve problems communicate effectively and work as part of a team. And they're the sort of liberal arts skills that we try and inculcate in our students here at Hamlin, in addition to some of the substantive knowledge that they, they have to have. But um, it's one of the advantages that students get coming from a place like this, coming mm -hmm. to a place like this. And those attributes you mentioned are preeminent. Um, I do want to uh, bring up a example 
uh, of a lawyer, and I want to see if you agree, but it's from a Malcolm Gladwell book, not sure if you've read it, uh, called David and Goliath. Oh, I haven't. Uh, extraordinary book. Um, and it's basically the idea of underdogs aren't necessarily these underdogs that we think they are, mm -hmm. that they actually have advantages mm -hmm. uh, that, that make them so they can beat the Goliaths, mm -hmm. the big dogs. Uh, so Malcolm Gladwell gives an example of a lawyer, and I forget his name, mm -hmm. uh, with dyslexia. Mm -hmm. um, and now he's one of the premier, I think it's civil lawyers, mm -hmm. in the country. And uh, he credits uh, his success from despite having dyslexia, well, from having dyslexia was that because he couldn't read as much, it forced him to become a terrific listener. Mm. And so when it came to reading hundreds of, of pages in legal documents mm. and all, all that sort of stuff, uh, he had to work his way around that, mm -hmm. but became a terrific listener. And he said it helped him really simplify things down. Mm -hmm. Uh, which provided him advantages. Would you agree with, with, with that in that it can't, like those attributes would help? Oh, intuitively, yes. I mean, I, I think that makes sense mm -hmm. that you can develop skills in a certain area which will compensate for areas where you may not be so strong. And so being able to listen effectively is an important skill and you could develop that um, under those circumstances. Intuitively, that makes sense to me. Wonderful. Well, last thing I want to ask before I take off, well, before I take off, before I let you, uh, before I let you go, um, what I'm thinking about all the kids out there that want to go into legal studies and want to be lawyers or want to be paralegals or, or want to look into it a little bit. What is your message to them? So it's my message to the seven-year-olds who, who want to be, because all seven-year-olds are lawyers. They know precedent. Okay. But wait a minute. You let Johnny do that. Um, they, they know the appellate process. Oh, all right, I'm going to go and talk to Dad. Um, <laughs> and they like to argue. Now, many of them grow out of, of wanting to be lawyers. But um, I would say um, if it develop um, as well, it depends on the age. But if you're in high school, um, get into into mock trial. Get into to debate. Um, develop uh, skills of being able to communicate effectively work on your writing. I mean, one of the things that will differentiate you, and this is not just true of the law, but other areas as well, is your ability, being able to write effectively, communicate effectively and write well. So develop those skills. Um, try and get comfortable with you know, being on your feet, talking, talking in front of people, um, even if you're gonna be a transactional lawyer in the end. Um, those sort of, sort of skills are gonna be really important as you go through not just any undergraduate degree, but if you're thinking about going to law school, those are the sorts of skills that are going to be going to be really useful for you. I love it. And it's clear you're so passionate about what you do, and that's momentous. And you, okay. it's obvious that you're making a huge impact in the lives of many. Uh, so thank you so much, Stephen. My I have pleasure. the honor to call you Stephen because I'm not your student. You so uh, thanks so much. Uh, I've had a great time. Pleasure.